0: it's that time your fix is here college football is a year round discussion with these two here's J.C. and Morgan Mike Morgan of ESPN and J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports have you covered
1: beginning right now it is another installment of J.C. and Morgan. He is J.C. Sherbert of Twenty Four Seven Sports. I'm Mike Morgan of ESPN and the SEC Network. We uh, continue a a really great list of guests this time of year. That's one. That's why this time of year, actually, from a podcast standpoint of point of view, has become one of my favorites. We know what we're going to do in the fall. That that's kind of on autopilot. We react to the games. We we preview games. We talk about the top stories. The offseason, since we started having these guests, um, you folks out there have loved it uh, and, and have told us that. And we just keep it going with with people that we really think are uh, just interesting to talk to from the vantage point of, yes, in the media. And very often former players, in this case both, in, in the case of a guy who uh, won a national title, uh, did all kinds of things, both in high school and at Alabama, now has his own talk show, uh, talk show with uh, Cole Kublik, who uh, we've had on this podcast before, as well as you know him, of course, from ESPN as one of the top uh, analysts on college football. He is Greg McElroy, and he joins us now. Greg, how are you, sir? Good, guys. Thank y'all for having me. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate you coming on. It, it just kind of worked out this way where we uh, we we've had this string of quarterbacks, and it's funny, like. You're on TV so much now, like pretty soon there's going to be a generation of people that are like, I didn't know Greg McElroy played quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, they're going to know you as the guy who is uh, they see pop up on their high def. And of course, if you're listening to one of the better college football radio shows in the country for my money, then they know you from that with the work you do with Cole. So it's, it's got to be a little bit interesting from uh, from that aspect. You've really kind of hit the ground running in this broadcasting world
2: that you're now in. Well, it's been strange to kind of transition. Um, you know, I, I retired from the NFL ten years ago, or just about ten wow. years ago. I retired in uh, March of fourteen. After mm-hmm. I had kind of agreed with SEC Network to to latch on and be a part of the launch, about six months later than that, I was still under contract with the Bengals. Was planning on going back to camp, and it's like you blink a couple times, next thing you know, it's been a decade. <laughs> it's right. like it's it's wild, and it's it's. Look, I, I always thought that this would be kind of a part-time job. I, I don't know how you approached it, Mike. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you approached it this way, JC, but like college football was kind of a hobby. You know, I that's kind of how I viewed it. Right. And then when I got into it, I kind of became captivated by this world. And realize that if you want to cover it appropriately, it's it's not like a oh, you know, I'll just go nine to five. And then in the afternoons, I'll look at some college football stuff like it doesn't right. work that way. So no. uh, you have to live it year round, especially in the portal portal era. And, you know, I like y'all am extremely lucky to do what I love every day. And that's covered the sport that I care most about. No, no doubt about it. And, and we've had. Uh, here's where
1: all three of our worlds meet. We'll get to J.C.'s brush with McElroy in a moment. You probably don't know this, but in 2014, the year you referenced, I get a phone call from a guy who was our boss, Steve Ackles, kind of in a roundabout way, might still be. Who knows? That's a whole other story. But um, he says, hey, and back then I was not full-time quite yet with ESPN. I was still doing games for another network. And he asked if I could do uh, a college football game at Texas A&M and he said, you'd be working with Greg McElroy, which I believe would have been your first game. Would it yeah. not? That yeah. That's Lamar, I think. Lamar. That's exactly
2: yeah. who it was. It was week two, right after Kenny Hill went out and lit up right. South Carolina. That's right. That's right. And we had the following week. Yep. So
1: I, it, the hardest thing for me to do, I, I so wanted to do that. And the, the excitement level of getting a chance to work with you. I, I work with a lot of first time um, analysts, including one of your former teammates, Barrett Jones. Um, and, and I always enjoy that. And I just, for some reason, just remembering you as a quarterback knew that this was, you were going to take this like a duck to water. So I was like, this would be a, just a a natural, uh, transition for him, be a lot of fun. So anyway, I long story short, I said, no.
2: Um,
1: and and since then we've never actually, um, worked together. Sadly, Uh, Dave
2: Baker slid in, uh, one of the three days. Yes. Dave Busman And we had, uh, I'll never forget. You never forget your first truck. You right. know, uh, so we had, I mean, it was on all hands on deck. I've since worked with the director a couple times on spring games, random one-offs. Right. Um, but it, Bob Goodrich was okay. the producer and mm-hmm. Bob Goodrich, and this is real inside baseball for anyone that's watching that, you know, hasn't been in a booth before, which I'm sure is a significant majority of your audience. Right. Uh, Bob Goodrich is like a hall of famer, you know, mm-hmm. but he's cut from the old school cloth. Like he's hardcore. And like if if you hear a four letter word in your earpiece, like you just go yeah. with it, like right. <laughs> so. Just don't repeat I, it. it. Yeah, it felt very comfortable for me coming from the football world. Uh, so I'm disappointed that you weren't in the booth alongside, but yes, um, I was drinking through a fire hose that night with two tempo teams, and I didn't know what the heck was going on. They kind of just throw you out there and see how you <laughs> do. do. That's Synch what people s- don't realize. They
1: they'll take an analyst and just throw him to the wolves.
2: Swim? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You figure it out. It's it's honestly it's survival mode, right? I mean, yeah, right. you call the game, but we all practice calling the game. Like, why did that stupid announcer say that? Oh yeah. yeah, like I say that about myself when I'm watching things back. Like, why did I say that there? Right. Um. But at the same time, it's like, man, you're just trying to get to the next play. <laughs> yeah. <know>? It's like, <laughs> well, but I
1: I think what what people appreciate about you, um, and and this came from an early spot, and and you're right, ten years has snuck up on all of us, um. Is that it's it's opinions, but it's educated opinions. It's thought out opinions in a in a, a universe of hot takes. That's never been your bag, whether it's on radio or whether it's uh, calling a game. It it just seems like a well thought out um, analysis of whatever the thing is, whether it's a play you just saw or whether it's a storyline, what have you. And I you mean you do a lot of hits on various shows on the ESPN networks and I, I just just my opinion i'm not just saying this because you're on when i see greg mcelroy about to give his take i, I know it's a thought out uh not the not that the temptation to just i got to be far <laughs> one way or another right like right. i just got to be a super strong opinion on this it's just well thought out and in and, and, and intellectually sound i guess is what i'm looking for and and i've always appreciated about that 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 goes above and beyond what you do calling a game, which obviously that is something you've, you've adjusted to very well, but that's just always been my, my scouting report on Greg McElroy, the (laughs) analyst. And I I appreciate guys that do that, that actually
2: think before they just blurt something out. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I I try to be thoughtful, Um, probably to a fault at times in my life and in my playing career, probably a little over analytical, um, probably overthink things a little too much. I see the gray area mm-hmm. probably a little too much, um, especially in a world in college football and decision-making it's black and white. It's not like, right. well, you, you know, why'd you go there? Well, you could have gone there. It's, I mean, it's like you either went to the right receiver or you didn't, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, right. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's not like, well, you could have tried that. Well, you know, you could, I mean, sure there is, I mean, if you really want to get down to it. There, there is a gray area. But what, what I've always tried to do is, I always try to see the person underneath the helmet. I try to see the person on the sideline underneath the hat. People see dollar signs aligned with these coaches, and it's easy to be critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a family behind that coach. There is a a fan base behind that coach. There's a mom and a dad behind that coach. I was talking to an athletic director yesterday on the phone, and he said, "I, I just, you know, I just want you to, to know, like." Like I I appreciate your stance on fill in the blank subject and we won't go down the rabbit hole because I just appreciate your stance on that. Like you could have very easily been really, really critical and and you weren't. Um, You tried to find the silver lining and you tried to understand why we did what we did collectively and the decision that we ultimately decided to make. It was in regards to the college football playoff and Mm -hmm. the 12 team playoff model and, and the format. I don't feel like I'm, going to be giving up my source or my relationship by telling you what the reason, what the source was, uh, calling about, it was about the 12 team play. I said, Hey man, I look, there are some flaws. There are some things we'd like to get figured out, but we appreciate you not going scorched earth. I said, because you guys are doing the best you can. Mm-hmm. Like there are pre-existing contracts in place. There are, uh, there are challenges that we have to overcome as a sport. Uh, when it comes to the NFL scheduling model and we don't want to go head to head and weekday games aren't ideal for fans and multiple neutral site games aren't ideal for fans. But currently with the current structure that we have, it's the best we can do. Right. And, and I think it's real easy to be super critical. I think it's really easy to say, well, that coach doesn't know what the heck he's doing. They stink. He's making $10 million a year. He better figure it out. It'd be easy to say that, but that coach might have two daughters at school that are taking a lot of heat at school as they you know, go to high school, middle school, elementary school in the community in which he coaches and they're hearing what we say. So I try to see the person behind and I try to understand the why. And I've always tried to understand the why. There's a reason why people do things, uh, whether that's in the heat of battle during a game or whether it's a decision on a recruit or a decision on whether or not you need to clear out the entire roster and refill it with a bunch of portal guys, like with what's going on with Deion Sanders at Colorado. I mean, Mm -hmm. There's a why. And I try to understand why. And I think as a result, I've developed some good relationships with coaches. Um, Not that I'm going to propagandize by any stretch, but if I come with the criticism, it's because I genuinely believe that's the correct decision. And I'm not always right. There've been a million examples of which I've been wrong, but at least I I can look myself in the mirror at the end of the day, knowing that I gave my opinion and I, I didn't do it in an effort to go viral. I did it because I'm really trying to educate every time we go on the camera.
1: It's genuine. Yeah. That was the other word I was looking for. Go ahead, JC.
2: Yeah, I think it's about fairness. I mean, that's one of the things. During, uh, and
0: I'm kind of retired from journalism. You know, I don't, I don't claim that title anymore. I'm much more of a, I guess, a personality or, or journalism's or a hot
2: word right now. That's a, it's, that's a it's, tricky it's, word. I Are mean, you going down the rabbit hole? I'm not <laughs> claiming it anymore. But, but
0: I, I did my first job at journalism was a, a high school sports reporter in Gainesville, right. Georgia. Before Deshaun Watson and uh, all those guys came out of Gainesville, but uh, I had an editor. He was a Vietnam vet named Mickey, and he loved Marshall. And he used to talk like this: "You put a JC, JC, go herd." But he would always be like, "You need to be. I don't care what you write. You just need to be fair. Be fair." He said it over and over again, like that. Right. God bless you, Mickey, if you're still hanging, hanging in there out there. You know, he kind of was like a pack a day smoker and some stuff back in the early two thousands. But anyway that's always stuck with me and i've always just try to be fair and you mentioned that this really is good because you mentioned understand the why understand the why and 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 i've been critical before i've there's things I, i've very strong opinions about things of course but i can always kind of get where people are coming from and then the human <laughs> element i think fans in general these days because we're in the era where You can say anything you want and not get punched in the face because it's on the internet, right? You're behind a a screen. I think fans in general have totally lost track, and maybe they never were this way, uh, of the human side of it, be it coaches, recruits, whatever. This is not Xbox. These are not robots. They're not out there, you know, if they make a bad play, it's not the guy with the controller may have hit the right buttons, right? It's just that they're humans, right? And and so so I appreciate that. I I think that's – that's probably why people uh, really like listen and respect what you say uh, on an on a daily basis about the sport is because you could sense that it's it's that's not something you could fake.
2: well I also think too it comes from in a perfect world and I'm sure JC and Mike you guys I mean you've covered teams long enough you've been around the sport long enough you find that well, I will always be proud of my allegiances to Alabama. Always, uh, that's my that's my alma mater. It's my sister's alma mater. I have multiple degrees from there. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Like I am a Bama guy through and through. But uh, at the same time, like you kind of fall in love with with the storylines of people. So people are like, well, why why do you like you know why are you a guy that would ever be so complimentary of a Tennessee? Or, or of an Auburn. Like, why, why? you know, people have a hard time understanding that mm. because they think, you know, if you're a Bama guy, you're throwing through Bama. Like, you hate Auburn, you hate Tennessee, and you hate Georgia. That's just the way it is. And that's – I don't see it that way because there are several people. Like, the team I hated more than anyone in school was Florida. I hated Florida. Loathed the Florida Gators. Hated Urban Meyer. Hated Tim Tebow. Hated them more than anything in the entire world. Not, I mean, Tim knows this. It's not like I'm – you know, it's not a secret. They were the alpha dogs in college football and we wanted to beat them. And, but then as I got to know Tim, it's like, man, I can't believe I really disliked this guy in college. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, and then Jim McElwain ends up as the Florida Gator head coach. And it's like, man, I really want Florida to do well. And then Billy Napier ultimately gets it. And Dan Mullen, several of which have been my friends known Dan for years, dating back to his time as the OC at Florida. And, and, You know, it's like, how could uh, just, I've found that you start rooting more for people than you do for places. And that's been a, a bit of a kind of a change for me. And I think it's a little different for the fan because they view it through the lens of I'm this team. So therefore, because of the way I've been raised, I am raised to dislike and or loathe this team. Like for instance, as a guy that lives in Birmingham, if Alabama and Auburn are undefeated, at 11-0 to no, in the Iron Bowl every year, that is the greatest thing for the state of Alabama you could possibly imagine. Now it's going to make for some interesting Thanksgiving dinners, <laughs> but it would be phenomenal for the state. And it's something and it's an outcome that I root for every year. And it's just, it's just the way it is. So I, I think uh, part of it, yes, understand the why, understand the human element, but also at the same time, man, I swear on my life, I just want college football to be healthy, I want college football and the positivity around college football to exist. We live in a negative world where everyone, and I've heard this for years now. Well, college football is not the same as it once was. I don't love it as much as I used to. The NIL has turned me off. I don't like the portal. I don't like kids sitting out of bulkers. I don't like all these other, like all I hear are negatives. Like negative, 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 negative. It's like it's so easy to be critical. But at the same time, there are also, along with the negative, I'd be lying if I told you that. All the aspects of college football make me happy. They don't. There's things about it I would change. There's things about it I dislike. But while acknowledging that those things exist, I think it's also important to tell the positive stories and the first-time college graduates, first-time college attendees, the guys that are receiving degrees, the guys that opportunity to play for their hometown t- school, the guys that... um you know, ultimately go on and, and the lucky ones, the 1% to get on to get an opportunity to go earn six, seven figures in the NFL, eight figures in some cases. Uh, it's just though, you know, those are the stories that I think are kind of lost in the weeds in the hyper hyper focused, I guess, approach of everyone in an effort to win. So there's, I, I just think we don't cover the sport as positively as we should. Um, so I've definitely tried to do that as well because it's easy to find the negative and it's you got to look a little bit harder to find the positive from time to time
1: and, and i think that that to your point the negative's always been there it's just reported on more there's the social media and and more sports talk radio than ever uh 24 7 sports networks some covering one specific conference like all the things that you could think of that are so-called negatives that, that that fans are upset about now. I realize nil and the portal are, are different, but but look, everything else was going on, whether we wanted to acknowledge it or not. Like kids were getting paid in many cases long before we had
2: nil um, players. But it's also ch- the round-the-clock coverage too. I think it's that's just, it. Hey, we always have to be churning out content. That's it, that's and that's abs- okay too. But like when toe meets leather back, I mean, college football used to exist in a microcosm we played games on saturdays you got to Mm -hmm. watch six or seven games those are the only ones available to you so you got to watch six or seven games and it was very celebratory so people look back at that time where it was so nostalgic whereas school the i mean we voted for crying out loud on a national champion back then Mm -hmm. like how does that make sense like you're you're an ap writer that is determining who's the best team in college football. Like, how do that, what, you know how messed up that is? Like, yeah, I mean, so, it's laughable.
1: It, it's ridiculous. It really, it's it's ridiculous. the only sport that's ever done it. That's why it's I always insane.
2: say I, I
1: made a pledge when they went to four teams, and I I, I never thought four was going to be enough. Just just one man's opinion. I thought it. My ideal number was always eight. Uh, but I I made a pact that if we ever got rid of the BCS after twenty long anguishing years. Uh, And after a hundred years of, as you pointed out, just voting on champions and split champions and everything else, I would not complain about anything because I'd just be so happy that we'd have some semblance of a playoff. Right. And so we did. We got four. Perfect. No, but it it served its purpose. And it sure as heck was better than what we had. Now it's going to 12. And it took me a while to kind of wrap my arms around 12. Is that going to affect the importance of some of the regular season games? But then I see like all the positives that come with 12. So like I'm all in, I'm there's so many things you could complain about. I'm not going to complain about that.
2: Yeah. And I'm with you. I mean, there are aspects of the 12 team playoff that I'd really like to see changed. For instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, I hate that the second round games are going to be played at neutral site. Yeah. I don't like that. I personally think that if you win your conference championship, you should be awarded with a home playoff game. That's Mm -hmm. just my own personal thought. Now, But given the fact that there are already multiple, six to be exact, bowl uh, relationships with the CFP, like that ain't changing. It just has to be what it is right now. So, yes, I'd like to see tweaks and we get two-year sample size. We get a two-year focus group to see, hey, does this work? Are there things that we can do better before we wipe the slate clean in 2026? But it's, look, it's, it's imperfect. But I'll tell you this, man, when toe meets leather, it's pretty dang good. No. Uh, and, and I think as we if we just focus on the pageantry of the game, the experience that you get when you step on campus, the energy you feel when you step on campus, the just the youthful exuberance you feel even as an adult that's in your 70s, how you feel when you walk through the tunnel and walk up the grandstands to your seat that you've been sitting in for 50 years. I mean, there's just something really special about that and the fact that it's it's i think i used to think baseball was the great you know generational connector like i learned baseball from my dad my dad learned baseball from his dad you know he learned baseball from his it just it was that was the mm-hmm. thing and i think baseball because of its pace of play and we can talk about the rule changes and all the things that have happened how much better it is this year yeah it's great but i don't think baseball is that anymore i think it's actually college football i think college football is passed down from generation to generation And it's, it's, I think, really special. And it's one that I've tried to keep alive, even though I'm on the road every single week going to games all over the country. We have season tickets. And my two sons and my wife, they go to the game. And that's, that's something that they're – obviously, I'm not there, but it's being passed down, and hopefully someday they'll pass it on to their kids and so on and so forth. So I do think that there's something really special about college football and the game day experience. And as long as we continue to focus on that, we'll continue to have so many positive things to be excited about.
1: Yeah, for years I've said it's it's the Teflon sport. No matter how hard some people try to screw it up over many, many decades, college football is – it's impervious to anything you do to try to destroy it. The passion that fans have for it, it's not going anywhere. It's only expanding. Other sports have to battle the ebbs and flows. College football really hasn't had to do that. Um, Greg, usually when we have guests on, we, we it's a little bit of uh, this is your life. So I mentioned J.C. and you have crossed paths before going back to his national recruiting days So, JC, break it down. First of all, how many stars did we we have Greg McElroy at? To future national championship quarterback, NFL quarterback. How many stars was he looking at?
0: He was a Texas kid. And so, Texas was like, I covered the SEC, but Texas was not an SEC state at the time. Uh, I think he ended up at four. I
2: I I think he was three, JC. Don't try to round up now. (laughs) All right. Uh, (laughs) right. But it's understandable. Like back then, if you actually look at the amount of guys that received four stars, there mm-hmm. were a lot fewer that received sure. four stars back yeah. then. Um No, that's not – look, maybe players are just more ready to jump. I don't know how y'all's grading works. I think 247 is an amazing job. I I mean, I use it as a resource all the time. I can't watch all the tape. Uh of high school kids. So I rely on what you guys do. And I'm very, very grateful and appreciative to the amount of time and and resources that you guys put into it. But I was a three-star, but that year it was very unique. Uh, Matthew in the Dallas Fort worth area alone, Matthew Stafford. uh, He won the four, a title. I won the five, a title. I was a three-star at Southlake. Christian Ponder was in our division. Christian Ponder ultimately ended up at Florida state. Uh, Andy Dalton was a three-star, ended up at TCU. He was actually out of Houston. We played him in the state championship game. But Texas, that, during that time period, and it's still good, it's still really, really good, but the amount of quarterbacks that came out of Texas in like a three- or four-year period was insane. Nick Foles, uh, you know, the uh, the four that I already mentioned, guys that are all playing on Sundays. Ryan Mallett was another guy. Um, Colt McCoy, of course, was like, was a year or two older than I was. I mean, there were so many good ones that had come out during that time frame. So for me to be a three-star, it was actually probably the best thing for me. I went into it with a bit of a chip on my shoulder, and I was always kind of grateful to be under-recruited. Um, yeah. I, I I thought that that kind of provided me the extra boost and the extra motivation to prove people wrong. and. It, it suited me well. Whereas if I was over-recruited, that would have been, I think, harder to kind of fill those expectations and you go in and with nothing to lose. It, it allows you to kind of blossom and take your own path and be patient as the opportunities present themselves. Yeah,
1: so when you, oh, no, go ahead.
0: You were actually committed to Texas tech, right? For a while. I was. Yeah. Uh, Coach Leach and uh, RIP to him, by the way, one of my favorite people in the sport. But uh, uh, and then Alabama came in late and you mentioned Tebow earlier. Alabama, I believe in that class. If I'm not mistaken, in Osa, yeah, that was Tim's class. Shula sort of went the distance with him, uh, and even though it was probably always Florida, and then they came, they kind of circled back on you. So that was that was kind of an interesting recruitment as well. A lot, a lot of people, you know, you're synonymous with the Saban era, but a lot of people make it make it lost on them
2: that Mike Shula is actually the one that that, that spotted you and and signed you at Alabama. He was, and it was it was an interesting. So Tim and and Mike Shulow, and I always appreciated this about Mike is he was very transparent throughout the entire process. He said, We mm-hmm. are offering one guy. We don't have to have a quarterback. We have four on scholarship right now, but we're gonna offer one guy, and that guy's gonna be Tim Tebow. And if he decides to come here, then our, you know, obviously no quarterbacks will be taken beyond that. But if he decides to go elsewhere, we're gonna reevaluate things. At that point, I was committed to Texas Tech early in the process, probably week three of my senior season. Only started one year in high school, backed up Chase Daniel, who went on to <laughs> finish, what, runner-up or third in the Heisman at Missouri and is still in the NFL, uh, amazingly enough. Uh, So backed him up. Um, So I, I didn't really get to play a lot until my senior year. Before I started a senior my senior year, though, before I ever started a game, and this was a weird time because it didn't happen like this. I still had 10 scholarship offers because Chase would go play baseball and I would get a lion's share of the reps in the spring. And they're like, who's this number 17? He's he's pretty good. So I ended up getting offers from a lot of smaller schools, you know, the Rices of the world, SMU, Baylor. Baylor at the time was not good. Uh <laughs> They were probably of the teams that offered me. They're probably the worst team, which is crazy what they inevitably mm. uh became. But that was the guy Morris era, and they were like one and eleven in a good year. Uh, mm. but Phil Bennett was at SMU. He offered me, TCU offered me early. Uh coach, I still have so much appreciation uh for coach Patterson and, and taking a chance on me early on. BYU offered, Kansas offered. So it was a bunch of kind of smaller schools. But uh, ultimately, I'd always said, you know, I'm going to make a decision because I don't want to be thinking about the recruiting process. I'm going to make one early. Texas Tech at the time was the best available. I committed to Texas Tech over North Carolina there in my third week of my senior year. And then at the end of the year, after we won the state championship, I kind of reassessed everything, took my visits, and ultimately decided that the best place for me was Alabama. Um, it just aligned with what I wanted from a college experience. Now at that point, did I think a national championship was within reach? I I think I would have told you as an 18 year old, yes. But if I were to say, you know, your life depends on winning a national championship, I would have said, all right, that's probably pretty unlikely, but I knew we had a good class of the guys we signed in that class. I think we signed like 22 or 23 guys, like 10 or 12 had won state championships in high school. And to me, I wanted to be aligned with winners and, I resonated with that class probably as much as anywhere else I took a visit. Took a visit to Colorado. At that point, they were pretty dang good. And mm-hmm. Dan Hawkins was coming down from Boise. I had known Dan for a long time. Took a visit to Ole Miss. Ed Ogeron was the head coach there at that time. I took a visit to North Carolina. Uh, honestly, North Carolina was was right there in the mix and then had taken a couple other unofficials to kind of evaluate the whole process. Tennessee. Was it Butch
1: at, at Carolina at that time?
2: He didn't get there at that time. Um, it was right it was before plenty. Butch. Uh, bun- yeah. Bunting. Bunting. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, it was weird though to me cause they got shelled the game that I took my visit to go see them. They got shelled and all the guys were like, all right, we're still going to go out. Y'all want to go out. I'm like, y'all just got beat. I'd be crying into my pillow. Like this doesn't <laughs> align with me. Like I want to win. You know, right. like If we lose, like I'm going and I'm like thinking about, you know, don't jump off the cliff. Like that's just how I approached it in high school. We went 63 and one. So, uh, Bama was the best place for me, and ultimately when Saban got there, it was you know it was warp speed all the way to the top of college football and it was just really fun to see things change the way it did. Do you follow Tyler Watts or am I missing a bridge guy? So Tyler Watts, Brody Croyle, Croyle, uh, Brody. And then John Croyle. Parker Wilson and then and then me.
1: Oh, I missed two bridge guys. I forgot about John Parker Wilson. Yeah, John
0: Parker was Saban's first year and
1: then That's right. That's right. Uh, right? Right?
2: Where, yeah, so John it? Parker was the starting quarterback in six, seven, eight. I was the starting quarterback in I mean, nine and nine. ten. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So John Parker was there for Savin's first two
0: years. Two. Okay. And so, yeah, but you, you won the, you were the first one to win the national championship. That's right. I think those Correct. years kind of blend together. Yeah. And of course, that, uh, that 07 or 08 class that Bama signed was, I, I thought that that kind of put them over the top. Just so many great players. It was such a great in state group that year. Uh, Julio Jones, all those guys. Even guys like Marcel Darius, you talk about rankings. Marcel Darius is like a high three star out of Birmingham, yeah. you know, yeah. and they, they got every, they, Auburn had kind of tilted the scales and stayed a little bit before Sammy got there. And then all of a sudden Bama just gets everybody. And at that, well, they, they, that
2: point, Auburn had won like five or six yeah. iron bowls in a row. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, I remember Tommy Tupperville, who's become a real good friend. So uh, you know, he, He was the fear of the thumb. And I I loathe Tommy Tupperville in college. Goodness gracious. Like he just poked at us and poked at us and poked at us. And finally we got over the hump in 08. But you look at that 08 class, it was really a massive class. I mean, it was a great. And I remember walking through the door, our first summer workouts when that 08 class arrived. And this was before the era where everybody graduated early and came in January. Probably had three or four guys in January, but most of the guys arrived in June. And I remember having freshmen walk in. Michael Williams was the one that stood out the most. And Julio, like everyone knew Julio was going to be a freak. Like that was, you, you know, we knew he was going to be different. You know, 18 year olds just don't look that physically mature. Hmm. But Michael Williams was the guy that probably stood out the most. It's like, who the heck is this guy? You know, he's like some random guy from Ufala or wherever it was. And uh, yeah. he's, he's like six freak. eight it's like 68270 <laughs> and he's like run I'm like who is this guy my uh, goodness yeah no it was just one of those things but you look at the 09 group um yes we were certainly boosted with a lot of good young quality pieces from that 08 class but really the nucleus of that 0-9 team and the glue that kind of held it all together. And I think what made us real special is that we had a lot of self-made guys on that roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Left tackle was a first round pick. The left guard, Mike Johnson was a third round pick. Great player. Center, undrafted, never played in the NFL, William Vallejos. Right guard was Barrett Jones. At that point, he was a redshirt freshman. Really good player, really more smart than he was talented at that phase of his career. Right tackle was Drew Davis, a guy, little two-star prospect from Evergreen, Alabama, was just as tough as nails and was kind of a tone setter for us. Our tight end was Preston Dial. Uh, Never played in the NFL, but was 6'2", 250, and would rip your face off. Uh, Looks like like, a... you know, you look at him. What are those uh, Rock'em Sock'em Robots? So robots so yeah. His head was like that. I mean, he just had a <laughs> battering ram head and was our H-back and still one of my best friends, my roommate in college. That uh, never played in the NFL, but was just a grinder in that 06 class. Uh, 08, our, our other tight end was Colin Peak, never played in the NFL, transferred over from Georgia Tech when they went to the triple option, but not really like a future NFL guy by any stretch. Our slot receiver was Darius Hanks was an under-recruited three-star guy who was awesome, great route runner, never had the volume that he probably would have liked and we were run first team. Julio, of course, at X was unbelievable. And then we have Marquise Mays, who still to this day is one of my favorite teammates of all time, never played in the NFL, but was 5'8", and played like he was 6'4". So the offense, I mean, that's the starting offense, and Trent and Mark obviously at, at running back we're, we're as good as it gets. Uh, but it, it's not like it was a, an all-star team by any stretch of the imagination. It was a bunch of guys that just worked really hard and were tough as nails and weren't going to be beat up. Uh, we were going to beat you up. And that's, that's why we were as good as we were. So defensively you can go to the other side. I mean, Eric Ganders, great MMA fighter, never an NFL player, Corey Reamer. Those are our two bookend stand up outside linebackers, two really good players, but never played in the NFL on the interior Uh, yes, Darius was amazing, but Lorenzo Washington played a little bit in the NFL and Brandon Dedrick played a little bit in the NFL, but neither had, uh, a super long career. Rolando was incredible, obviously a middle linebacker. He played, well, he could have played as long as he wanted to play. Kareem Jackson, who's still in the league at corner, Marquise Johnson, uh, and Javier Arenas were the other two corners. Javi had a really nice career, but that was more as a punt return guy. Marquise never really had a chance to play Mark Barron who of course was a first round pick, great player in the NFL. And then Justin Woodall who never played in the NFL. So it's not like it was an all-star team uh, at that point either. It was really a lot of guys that kind of bought in and that were a part of the ascent and, and ultimately turned themselves into really good players. But a lot of the guys were really self-made. They didn't start on third base by any stretch. They had to earn it Uh, and they had to earn the staff's trust because several of which were inherited by Saban and their staff. So it was really, it was a cool mix of people and, and we're still, I think, really, really close as a result of of the experiences we went through.
1: It's pretty amazing recall on your part, by the way. This is this is the benefit of not playing in the NFL for like twelve
2: years. You don't take as many <laughs> shots and you're able to just recite that like it happened twenty four hours ago. If you were to ask me who wore what number, all the way from one through ninety nine, I could probably tell you every single guy. And that's including walk ons, just because it was just it was just a special group and we were really close. And yeah. You know, we no one expected us to win it. You know, we were this we were kind of hiding in the weeds all year long. And then, sure enough, get our shot at Florida in the SEC championship and smoke them. See, uh, that game, a couple I, weeks I, later I maintain, beat
1: Texas, Greg, I think that that oh nine game. Uh, look, I've been a college fan my whole life. I've covered the SEC half of it. I would make an argument. That's one of the most important games in the history of the sport not just the SEC, because and you referenced the Urban Meyer run and the Tebow run and the titles in 06 and 08, and I don't remember what the point spread was in 09, but I know you guys were an underdog. Uh, most people thought Florida was going to do what Florida was doing at that time, was was just beating people up and going winning the SEC and then playing for national championships. That changed the complete impetus of two programs – for a long, long time. I mean, you could make the argument Florida really hasn't recovered. Urban Meyer was gone not too much uh, longer after that, and they haven't had great success since. And it was clearly the beginning of a dynasty, the likes of which I'm not sure we'll ever see again in our lifetime. So take us back. Let's all absorb it. Uh, I know a lot of Alabama fans already know this story, but for the other college football fans listening to us nationwide, what kind of vibe did you have going into that game, first off, when everybody's saying, oh, Florida's going to win it again, Florida's going to win it again? And then when did you feel like, oh,
2: no, we we got a chance to do this? Well, I, I think the first play is really stands out to me. Um, we took the ball. We didn't take the ball very often. Uh, more often than not, we deferred to the second half, but we wanted to be aggressive. Uh, so we took the ball, and we went back, in the first play of the game – Uh, We came out in a formation that they hadn't seen before. We put Julio in the slot in a three by one and Julio runs a little crossing route and the protection held up for quite a while. The route took a little while to develop. And I hit him on an over route and it's like a gain of 15, 16 yards. And from then on out, I was like, we got him," because they, we knew they were going to play man. And that was, that was, charlie strong's bread and butter he was going to run man coverage we knew that they were going to run man coverage we knew that brandon spikes was going to play man and blitz and they're going to try to overload the back and all this other stuff so like we were we knew exactly what we we're going to get and sure enough first snap of the game that's what we got and we're like all right let's go we go right down the field kick a field goal on the opening drive uh we stopped them we get the ball back we go right down the field again you know, just ding, 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 dude, just lighten them up. And we had not really at that point of the season, we hadn't really thrown the ball a lot. We, you know, throwing the ball had been kind of a secondary resource for us. So we knew in that game, they were really stout against the run. Their front seven was really, really good. And running the ball was going to be very difficult. So we knew that we had to be aggressive through the air. And we were able to do that with some new formations that we hadn't used all year long. And it was, you know, we, we knew, we knew going into the game we we weren't sure if we could run with them. That was a big question because they could run. Florida was they could fly. Which probably shouldn't surprise that many people. You look at the roster it was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous across the charts. Uh corners were amazing. We felt good about our wide receiver matchups. We knew Jones could win, but Jones had two catches for 28 yards in that game. Uh including that that the first play of the game. So he was not a huge factor in, in the game whatsoever. We thought that we were going to have to win against Janoris Jenkins, uh, and that was with Marquise Mays, who ended up having a really nice game. And we knew our tight ends were going to have to be really big for us as well. Colin Peake had a couple big catches, one in particular in the back of the end zone on a little throwback that that we had worked. But they had covered that throwback actually perfectly. So when I was able to somehow fit it in when they ran the perfect coverage for it and we were still able to score – And we knew that their perfect coverage wasn't going to beat our perfect execution. It's like, this is going to get sideways. And it did. And we, uh, we knew if we had a lead in the fourth quarter, it was over because there was nobody that was touching us in the fourth quarter from our conditioning standpoint, from our toughness standpoint, no no one could play with us there. We felt very, very good about that. Our whole off season is fourth quarter, fourth quarter, fourth quarter, fourth quarter, fourth quarter. I mean, Scott Cochran, the whole group, that's all it was about. So we felt really, really confident with our plan. We felt really confident knowing that we had absolutely nothing to lose. All the pressure was on them. And we were able to go out and play really freely. And all the guys responded well to the adversity that we faced there in the third quarter by just as soon as it got close and they started to close the gap, boom, we answered. And it was just, it was all she wrote from that point. Every time they punched, we punched back harder. And it was really, it was a cool game to be a part of because it was an indicator of what was to come. Uh, And it was four years of grinding that was paying off over the course of a three and a half hour period. And that, mm-hmm. that, you know, you get don't know how many times those opportunities will present themselves to know that we were able to seize it was, was pretty special. And it's one that we will obviously always remember and always celebrate. It, it's, gonna... it's the one that
1: got it all rolling. I, I mean, yeah. pun intended, like it, it, it without that, who knows how the trajectory of, of the sec uh, changes, but you, you get the feeling eventually Nick would have, imposed his will and that's the thing too about saban is that uh like i had an alabama game this year and and you know it, when you do a, a game on tv you sit with the coaches and of course for 30 minutes we didn't even have to ask a question he went off on nil and the portal and everything else uh nick is not shy about giving his opinions on that but i've made sure i soaked it all in because i don't know how much longer this guy's going to coach and i think we just kind of now we've take for granted that Saban is here and you know whoop do doo Alabama going to win 11 games plus a year and but he could just hang it up next year a year you just you never know and I guess of all the millions of, of Saban questions you get you, you maybe get tired of answering all these I'm just trying to I'm trying to put my finger on because I've been around him not nearly as much as you obviously or or people that have covered him exclusively he doesn't wow you with his words right like when you're in a in a meeting room with him like you don't necessarily like you're not like wow that was unbelievable he just said the most brilliant thing i've ever heard and yet you know there's something that's in there with him that most coaches will never never know and never have so when did you realize like no this guy's just flat out different because you mentioned he was not necessarily the, the guy that recruited you that was that that goes back to coach shula but but there had to be something where you're like Like, maybe you were telling your dad, like, no, dad, I'm telling you, this guy is unbelievable.
2: Well, I think, I think probably he's just relentless, man. I mean, I I think that's, that's part of it. And he holds himself to such a remarkably high standard. Look, we worked in, he worked us so hard. I mean, like, the, the intensity of our workouts, our fourth quarter program, we went our first year for six weeks, six weeks of fourth quarter. Now the guys are, might do three. And we did six weeks where it was just relentless grind and weeding out guys that couldn't do it or couldn't do it. And by the way, his first year, we lost our last four games of the regular season. That's right. Because I think guys were just flat out exhausted, man. We gave it all we had. But it was a great learning experience of what you can put your body through. And it was it militaristic at the time? Yeah, it was. I mean, it, not saying that we went through, you know, Navy SEAL training by any stretch of the imagination, but the football equivalent of it. Uh, I suppose would, or you know, it was it was to test you both mentally and physically that uh that was just remarkable. I think the big thing with him though, and and he's just such a creature of habit, and he does, he's he's robotic and he's such a tactician that nothing gets overlooked. There is not one detail that's overlooked, and every single day he's the same. It's not like one day he's happy, one day he's sad. One day he's angry, one day he's happy. Like it's like he's the same guy every day. So having known him now for going on 16, 17 years, I've never not seen him be the way he is. And he is he's structured, he's regimented, and the consistency that he has within his own life. And the consistency with what he expects from the program is why the program never dips and why the program is steady and consistent. And they might not win every game, but there's going to be predictable performance just about every game you play to your standard. It doesn't matter what the other team does. It doesn't matter what the score is. That's the process you play each and every play as if it has a life of its own. And if you compile the 60, 70, 80, 85, 90 plays within the game, If you give your max effort on every single one and you win the majority of those plays, you're ultimately going to find success at the end of the day when you look up on the scoreboard. So I think he is just such a creature of habit, such a detail-oriented person, and he just stresses the process, the process, the process, the process that it's just... And honestly, I approach it in my own life. Like I try to be the same way every day for my kids. Like I'm always going to try to be the same. Like there's might be some tough love from time to time, but there might be some time where you love them up, but whatever the circumstances are. I mean, I'm going to try to be the same guy every day. I'm going to have the same process every day. I'm going to work out at this time. I'm going to go to do radio at this time. I'm going to do my podcast at this time. I'm going to do TV at this time. I'm going to watch tape at this time. So when you can create that consistency in your life, then you can have consistent results. And if your results are based on whether or not you win or lose the game every week, then more often than not, you're going to be on the on the right side of it. So yeah, I think it's easier said than done. Uh, but he really does an amazing job of of making sure that you feel that every day. And he never asks you to do anything that he wouldn't ask himself to do. And and I think that's something that every player can kind of relate to. And and obviously the process works. I mean, as you can see with the results.
1: Yeah, it's it's it's, it's going pretty well. I, I wanted to go ahead, JC.
0: Oh, no, I was just going to bring up um, on the other side of that spectrum during that time period with Steve Spurrier. uh, and We have a lot of South Carolina fans uh, in our audience, so I'd be remiss not to ask you about the 2010 game. And also during that time period, I remember A.J. McCarron had a quote a year later. uh, Bama had beaten uh, Ohio University or somebody, and he's like, yeah, you got to do this, 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 because the next thing you know, you're playing South Carolina in the Georgia Dome. A comment like that coming from the Alabama quarterback sort of shocked the Gamecock fans because it, it hadn't been the best history. Uh, what was kind of the perception uh, over there in Tuscaloosa about the Gamecocks during the Spurrier era? I know, and I know the prediction you made in 2014, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bring that up, uh, you know, because obviously they fell on their face. But uh, what was kind of the thought about uh, the Gamecocks back then? Because I thought that was. I always that that quote always struck with me. I was like, usually it's say Georgia or Florida or somebody like that. Uh, And then, if you have any thoughts on Shane Beamer and the job he's done so far?
2: Yeah, I mean, we always had a ton of respect for South Carolina. The year before, in two thousand nine, the national championship year, they gave us a lot of fits. They played at our place, and we we didn't play great by any stretch. We ran the ball really well. Uh, We had a couple early turnovers, and just never really gotten to much of a rhythm offensively that was a really talented South Carolina team I know you really think back to it though Alshon and uh and obviously Stefan Gilmore um you know just Lattimore I mean just a really really talented group of of guys uh so I always had a tremendous run and I love coach Spurrier I mean I grew up my mom went to Florida State so I grew up you know on the other side of that rivalry uh my uncle ironically enough went to Florida So grew up kind of not necessarily loathing, but also at the same time, like having an unbelievable amount of respect for what Spurrier had built in the 90s. Um, So to see him back on the sideline, he was like one of those guys where it's like, man, that's super cool. I can't believe I get to play in front of Steve Spurrier today. You know, I had that same feeling with only a few other guys where it's like, man, I just can't wait to see that face on the other side of the sideline. Spurrier was one. Bobby Bowden was one. Frank Beamer was one uh urban meyer you know in a slightly lesser extent was one but he wasn't he was kind of coming of age like as i was coming up and i already mentioned the animosity at that point so it wasn't quite the same with him joe paterno we played them my senior year uh you know at that time you know joe paterno i you know i thought he was just a, a god amongst mortals with with the type of program that he had built obviously that was before uh everything that went down after the fact but you know there were always a few coaches that you always kind of went and looked at on the side like man that's just It's just so cool. I grew up watching that guy like that's so awesome. (laughs) Needless to say, I got saving on our sideline. It's like, oh, I don't care about him. You know,
1: it's like, (laughs) yeah,
2: well, it takes a little Um, pressure
1: off. What about the coaches of today? What are the coaches, uh, whether it's guys you cover in in preparing for a game or just watching the games on TV or following the sport as a whole? Who are the, the coaches that impress
2: you the most? You know, you're kind of immune to it now, you know, I mean, you just, you get to know these coaches and you get to know them personally and you've played against them or you, or you've, uh, you know, you've studied them in the past. I mean, I remember my first game really having a booth that was in 2016. And I've sat down with Bob Stoops, my first coach's meeting ever, where I was actually in my own booth. And I thought that was super cool. I'm in Bob Stoops office. This is awesome. Mm. You know, I mean, remember that being a big one, but he kind of recruited me a little bit. So it wasn't as eye opening. but you know, there were a few, um, that that obviously stand out, but, but kind of back to the South Carolina, kind of back to the South Carolina question. Like I always had a tremendous respect for that place. I, I, I always thought that it was just a cool place because, um, y- there were a little bit like Mississippi state in a sense where, man, when you played them, you better pack your freaking lunch pail. Like it's going to be, we might not, we're going to, we might, we're probably going to win, but I tell you what, we better earn it, you know, and it was going to be hard. And if they get hot, look out. And that's what happened in 10. I mean, they just couldn't miss um, Alshon had a ridiculous day. We had a couple of young corners that struggled with his size and his, and his catch-making ability. Coach was calling a really nice game, mixing up screens and, you know, a lot of more on like little tiny screens and, and things like that. Steven Garcia got hot. So it was one of those where we kind of ran into a buzzsaw uh, a little bit. and And we, we hadn't at that point played well, um we had lost earlier or we had won earlier in the year against Arkansas at their place and we did not play well in that game. We Yo, I remember y'all were you were down down. Yeah, we were fortunate. I remember you led
0: the comeback. Yeah.
2: We ended up coming back and winning it, but it wasn't pretty. I mean, it was one of those like, man, we got a lot of things to address. So we were kind of playing with fire a little bit at that point of the season. A lot of the young guys, I think, just thought because they put a Bama uniform on, we show up and we win. Uh And it it wasn't that way. That was a really young team in 2010. Now people will look back at it after the fact and say, well, my goodness, that might've been the most talented team Saban ever had. Sure. But (laughs) you have three freshmen on the offensive line that are starting Chance Warmack, Anthony Steen, and DJ Fluker. Two of the three end up being top 10 picks, but at that point they were freshmen. Um, Obviously you had a, a veteran at left tackle. You had a veteran at center. Uh, And then the receivers were the same. The the running backs were the same. uh, And I was the same, but we had a lot of youth up front. So we had a lot of inconsistencies running the football and the protection really at that point was not great. Um, We just hadn't really quite figured it out. And then defensively, we were really young at corner. Drake, Kirkpatrick, and D. Milner ultimately both ended up being first rounders, but they had some inconsistencies. You know, at safety, we were breaking a new guy opposite. Mark Barron had some inconsistency. We just had that team had a remarkable, remarkable, We all tried really hard. We all studied really hard. We all did everything that we needed to do that we thought we needed to do to be successful, and we had good leadership. We had strong leaders. Dante Hightower, me, Barron, uh, Julio, a bunch of guys that were very strong leaders, but we just, just, for whatever reason, when one part of the ball was up, the other part of the ball was down. When the offensive line was running the ball well, we couldn't throw it or we couldn't protect. It was just we could never quite get on the same page. And if you look at it, we ran into a buzzsaw at South Carolina – And then we lose by three points against LSU after they run a 30-yard fake punt and convert on third and 18 with Jarrett Lee. How that's possible, I still don't know. (laughs) Uh, We had no business losing that game, but we somehow found a way to do it. And then against Auburn, against Cam and company, we're up 24-0. We have every possible bounce that goes away from us. And there's no excuses, man. We weren't the best team in the country that year. But we were a lot closer than I think people realized. The one bad outlier being South Carolina performance where – uh, they just had our number that day. So it was a it was a good year though I think in the long term looking back on it I think it helped coach illustrate like hey man you got to have your best stuff every week. It doesn't and look if you don't create enough separation between the guys you're playing against it might come down to a player or two. And if those plays are if those player two doesn't go our way, we might lose the game. So I think That experience of 10 where we came up short in three different games led to the successes down the road and coach being able to point to an actual illustration of what happens when you aren't always on your A game. So uh, it was a disappointing way to finish our college career, but at the same time, proud of how much we grew and and how much we improved over the course of a four-year period. On that on that game in
1: Columbia, Barrett Jones, who I worked with on some games, we did a game at Williams Bryce, and every time they played Sandstorm, he would reference the '09, excuse me, the 2010 game. He said, "Mike, I still had that in my head during nightmares, because the <laughs> they played it throughout." He said, "I couldn't get it out of my head that whole time." By the way, he also
2: says, "Ask Greg about nearly killing a referee named Eddie." Yeah. Is this we almost side? Well, I didn't, on I didn't your have anything to do with that. That was Rolando. Uh, but yes, and Eddie unfortunately was on the receiving end of some friendly fire. Uh we were in a two minute drill and it had to have been a Thursday practice. I, I don't recall if it was in training camp or if it was during the season. I really don't remember. Um it all kind it's one of those where like I really don't want to remember. But Eddie was a was a referee. Uh, for years and years and years. And he had been all the way back. Bear Bryant hired him. He had been, I believe he's still going to practice every day. But he was probably 90 years old at the time, roughly. Maybe maybe 85. Let's say 90. It sounds better. <laughs> uh, and he naturally standing where the referees stand is about 12 yards behind the line of scrimmage to the quarterback's right-hand side. And I get flushed in the pocket one time. And I try to throw it away and Rolando pushes me. I wear a black Jersey and practice as a quarterback, but this was in a time and an era where the black Jersey was not really. And we talked earlier in the podcast about black and white area. Like this was very much a gray area. Like you wore black. Sure. You can't get tackled hard, but you can still get hit. Uh, Nowadays they wouldn't. I mean, if you touch the quarterback at a practice, I think they'd lose their mind, but it was a little different era back then. Rolando pushed me after I threw it and I went, Backwards. I mean, I'm 225 pounds, six two. On Eddie, who's 85 years old, 90 years old, can't weigh more than 125 pounds. And Eddie hits his head on the turf. I'm not kidding. So hard it, it was. I mean, it was scary for all of us. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. And I'm sitting over there like panting, like nervous wreck, like freaking out, thinking like he's gonna, he's dead. I mean, I, I oh, mean, it, we're, it was, it was, it was horrifying. Um, needless to say. Coach Saban walked over, and I think Eddie would tell the story best. said, Eddie, okay? And Eddie's like, yeah, I'm okay, coach. He goes, all right, perfect. Move the drill down five yards. Let's go. Uh, so, <laughs> Checked on him. Eddie was fine. Good. We're good to go. That's the that's that's only reason I knew I could bring that up, because we know Eddie is still with us. Yes. And, uh, Eddie's perfectly fine. Full recovery. No here, problems whatsoever. No lingering effects. But, uh, yeah, Eddie will tell you that was definitely a, a moment that he had in his illustrious career refereeing uh, the Alabama practices.
1: Greg, I, I want to just sneak a, a question to him before we let you go, and you've been gracious uh, with your time here, just kind of covering the gamut. First off, you know, talking about the, the Alabama dynasty, which we don't know if the final chapter has been written yet, um, but but that being said, no matter what happens, the, the, the stretch that, that Nick put together, and I realize LSU had some blips here and there, and certainly they – they were the chief rival in the in the West. But I look at the East and what Kirby is doing at Georgia. And, of course, we're not going to have divisions much longer anyway. But talking about it, as you can hear, we've got guys cutting the grass outside. Um, is there any chance we could look at a similar type run with Kirby and Georgia as to what Nick and Bama did? Because in so many ways, it looks like I'm watching. Like, I just woke up out of a coma from 10 years ago, and I'm seeing the heart of Nick Saban and Alabama doing what they did in the early stages. This is back-to-back titles. Nobody is really threatening them in the East. We talked about Shane Beamer, there's Josh Heupel, there's Tennessee. But, I mean, nobody right now is near Georgia in that division. And for that matter, you could make an argument if they do it again this year, How how close are the teams in the West for that matter? So
2: is there a possibility of seeing that kind of run in Athens? I mean, I I think they're well on their way. I mean, and I do think, and I think we're all a little curious too, right? We move to a 12-team playoff. Are you giving the Georgias, the Bamas, the Ohio States, are you giving those teams of the world more opportunities to stub their toe in the regular season, still ultimately getting in the playoff, getting another do-over, if you will, and then finding their footing and basically beating up teams that aren't as talented as they are. Will the 12-team playoff benefit the teams that are more talented? I, I think it probably will. So I do think it might even for Georgia in some ways as we move forward into the 12-team playoff era, will it be more likely that they win more national championships than the four-team or the two-team? That's certainly possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, obviously you got to keep it going, and and I think doing it over the course of a 15-year period is insane. But uh, it'd be hard to bet against Kirby right now with what they've already done and, and with the momentum they've already created.
1: I want to I go out on on one question that, believe it or not, does not have to do with football. It does have to do with your talk show, which obviously you and Cole do a great job. Yeah, you talk nationally, but your your bread and butter is going to be Auburn, Alabama, doing a show in, in Birmingham. And you've had two stories. I think I came on your show right after the whole thing um, with Alabama basketball and brandon miller now you have a story with alabama baseball where the coach gets fired and there's talk about gambling uh issues and improprieties I, it, it it's just been a, a strange few months with all of that but how how hard has it been to cover those stories uh for you being right there in the home of crimson
2: tide well i mean it's 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 difficult. I mean, as an alumnus, I mean, you always want your university to be to be portrayed in the most positive light possible, but it's not realistic. Um, And this is certainly not a whataboutism by any stretch of the imagination. But we'll use the the Bohannon example, the baseball coach example. Um, I think with the era that we're living in right now, the access to gambling, what is gambling the, what is determined gambling, what are, the, you know, all those aspects of it. I mean, we're already seeing it at Iowa, Iowa State. Uh, we've seen issues, you know, kind of pop up in other places. I think we're just getting started on the gambling path. So this is unfortunately going to become the new normal if we don't get it under control very soon. Uh Gambling is no longer taboo. I mean, I do XFL games and we openly talk about gambling during the broadcast. Mm-hmm. It yeah. doesn't... It doesn't come with the scarlet letter that it once did. So um, access to gambling and all those other aspects, I think, are something that we're just going to have to cover um, in our world. I hate it, but I, I do think that it's kind of par for the course with with the direction that we're heading. Uh, all that being said, I, I, I still believe that that was an isolated incident. And uh, you know, based on the information that I have at this point, it doesn't necessarily speak to what's gone i mean bama actually after the fact beat vanderbilt 2 out of 3 right uh sure. so you know i don't think there was any improprietary you know improprieties as far as the team is concerned it just sounds like the coach did something that was uh obviously a immediate fireable offense and and he was like go uh but it, you just don't like seeing these things um obviously there's always this question right it's it's what's real, what's perceived, what's PR, what is the court of public opinion? You kind of are what your reputation says you are. And whether fair or unfair, it's just things are you're gonna be associated with things and and it's less than ideal. So I, I don't mind covering it. I like I talked about with the Brandon Miller situation. Like all I've ever wanted for Bama basketball as a Bama basketball fan is to be relevant to make the tournament every year. If we can make it to the second weekend, great. If we can win a national championship, my goodness. And the stars align, that's phenomenal. But, you know, I I'm still a Bama basketball fan. I still root for for Nate Oates. I'm still root for for the players. Uh what happened last year was was really disappointing. Uh I think how it was handled from a PR standpoint was disappointing. Um but it's you know it's an opportunity to learn from from the mistakes and and it's obviously another opportunity to reflect on Uh, on the victim in the case and you know i just want to make sure that they're the focus point not you know what was handled after the fact i mean focusing on Jamea harris is to me i think the most important thing and that was a little bit lost uh in the way that it was covered by a lot of the people in the media
1: no doubt greg we'll have to get you back on i I want to talk about the upcoming season i want to talk about quarterbacks i want to talk about uh the draft a whole lot of other stuff um as always uh, you're you're terrific covering the gamut really appreciate uh, your work Uh, kind of from afar Uh, hope that we can uh, do something at some point together down the road. And uh, again, keep up the great work, both on the radio show and on the analyst side. Uh, You've, you've truly emerged as one of the best. And we thank you so much for joining us.
2: And appreciate you guys having me. Thanks again. You got it. Thank you, Greg.
1: Thanks again to uh, Greg McElroy, who does uh, terrific work on uh, ESPN as well as the radio show Kublick and McElroy is it McElroy and Kublick? I don't know, but they both work really well together, and uh, th- that that's been tried before in other situations and has not worked particularly well. Having two in-state rival guys in a, in a state where um, you know obviously it's divided among the, the two universities' fan bases, that one does work. Like it's yeah. you got two qualified guys that are really uh, it's a good listen. Let's just put it that way.
0: Yeah, those two. Uh, when I talked earlier about fairness. Those two epitomize fairness. I, I've, hmm. I, I, I don't agree with every take Greg McElroy or, or Cole has. Sure, like from a football standpoint, but I always know and trust that they're being fair. Yeah, right. There's nothing that's unfair, uh, or cheap shot is or anything, anything. So, loads of respect for both those guys, really.
1: No doubt about it. Tell you else who's fair. Our uh, sponsors, Blue Delta Jeans, BlueDeltaJeans.com for the very best in custom fit jeans. Now they've got belts. They've got hats. Check out the website, BlueDeltaJeans.com. And remember, you don't have to show up to their store. You can go ahead and go online, get yourself fit. And before you know it, at your door is the pair of jeans that uh, you will cherish for a long, long time. Also by Look Cinemas. I went ahead, saw another movie, JC. I saw Foreman. It's back-to-back sports movies. Wow! I, I saw Air, and then I saw Big George, and I thought Big George was going to be bad, honestly, because the reviews were not great. I thought it was really good. I thought the guy who played him was good. I thought the story was good. I I I Never know. two thumbs up, man. I'm 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 Siskel and Eberting uh, here with a positive review. Uh, if you want to check out, look cinemas throughout the country. It's just awesome, man. You go in there; it's like a world class theater. Food, drinks, all ready to order. And again, as always, we give a pair away. First one that tweets me at Morgan on Air, just type in uh, movie tickets or any form of that, and I'll make sure to get a pair out to you for the closest look cinema. Mm-hmm. JC, uh, the guest parade will continue next week and beyond. Appreciate uh, the last few and you folks out there with your response. Really appreciate that. Also, check out the website jcandmorgan.com dot com as we continue to uh, add to that.
0: Yeah, I, I'll say something about the website. It's it's this battleship is now fully operational. Yes, so Star Wars. There we anyway, go. Uh, but it's uh yeah, it, it's it's good. You, you can look for more content there. Not only our podcast, but some written stuff. Uh, I know one day I'm gonna I'm gonna write about the movie Three Amigos because <laughs> it's near and dear to my heart. And <laughs> we've talked about all these movies lately, and I keep forgetting to mention it. I, is that I said, a fiver I said,
1: or a dimer for you. I, that's
0: a dimer, man. I a said, dimer. Like a, I wow. sent Mike a text the other day. I was like, "Shoot me if I do not mention Three Amigos next time okay. we talk about movies." Well, we so, need to
1: break down. We need to get yeah, back into the triple play. Got to
0: break that one down. But I mean, Greg was so good and thorough and and all that. And certainly, yeah. Sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta let it ride with the guest. Yeah, and, uh, he, he was great. So
1: yeah, first time we've we've had him on. And so you, sometimes with a new guest, you never know how it's going to go. Although with him, you you're pretty confident it's going to be pretty smooth, pretty eloquent. So. Uh, One a little bit longer than we thought we would, but that's okay. If guest is good, we'll just keep on rolling with it. And we'll keep on rolling with you next week on another installment of JC and Morgan. Thanks to Greg. Thanks to JC. If we had a full-time producer, we would thank him. So someday we'll do that. In the meantime, we just thank ourselves. (laughs) So long, everybody. See you next time on JC and Morgan.